Have you ever looked at someone thriving in their business and wondered, how did they do it? Have you ever thought that you can't have mental health and success? Have you doubted your own ability to create a financially thriving career that still has your well-being at the forefront? Well, welcome to the Boardroom Brain Podcast, where we tackle those very questions. I'm Dr. Lauren Cook, and I'm a clinical psychologist and speaker that takes you behind the business and inside the minds of today's most successful and personally thriving leaders. We're taking a look at our guests' secrets to success, how they bounce back when they've been knocked down, and what advice they have for you. Oh, and I've got another motive too. As a clinician and company consultant who frequently sees employees struggling mentally and knocking on the door of burnout, I'm invested in having conversations about how we can bring more wellness into company culture. I want to make sure that everyone has the absolute best work experience that we all can have. And I believe that includes making sure our businesses are invested in their employees as people, not just as time card stampers and payroll lists. So get excited to listen, learn, and leverage your own leadership skills. These conversations will help you tap into your own bravery while helping you reprioritize your sense of well-being, both at work and when you're off the clock. So step inside the conference room with me and welcome to the boardroom. Your brain is about to get a major bonus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Boardroom Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Cook. I cannot tell you how excited I am for today's guest. I'm fangirling a little bit, folks. (laughs) You are going to love our guest. Let me introduce you to her. Tessa White, known as the Job Doctor, exploded on social media with her expertise on careers and how to navigate the complicated relationship between individuals and the workplace. Her insights struck a chord, garnering more than 1 million followers on social media, and she is consistently ranked in the top 2% of creators on her live career sessions on TikTok. She is a 20-year expert in leading human resources functions from within the Fortune 50 to fast-growth tech startups. Her unique perspective on the modern workplace earned her a place on USA Today's list as one of the top speakers to watch in 2022. And I also got to add, she has a new book coming out. It is so, so good. The Unspoken Truths for Career Success. You have to get yourself a copy of this book. Tessa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, well, for anybody tuning in, Go follow Tessa on TikTok and Instagram. I know I do. I learn so much from you all the time, and I know many people are. Uh, We both, I have a feeling, love to read. And for those watching on YouTube right now, you can see both of our backgrounds. We've got all the books. Uh, Obviously, people need to read your book, but we love to start the podcast off with what our guests are reading these days, what's inspiring them. So Tessa, what's a book for you other than perhaps your own, feel free to share that too. <laughs> that's that's inspired you recently. Well, actually, yes, mine of course inspires me because I, I'm knee deep in it for writing it. But the one that I've read lately, I absolutely love, is called "The Mountain Is Us," and my daughter bought the book. Um, I thought I could learn a little bit about imposter syndrome, but it's really not about that as much as it is about how we get in our own way and how we'll always choose the path of discomfort that we know over the path of discomfort we don't know. And I teach a lot about that. And so it really struck a chord with me. And I think it's a fantastic book. 
Oh, okay. We will add that in the show notes for folks. That sounds like a very needed read right now. So thank you for that. Uh, now let's dive into your book because there are so many nuggets of wisdom here. I mean, I, you should see my annotated copy. Um, but one thing that you said that I think will really strike a chord for, for listeners, you say in your book that 51 to 65% of people are disengaged from the workforce. That's more than half. Let's start there. I mean, why do you think that is? You know, if you study the experts on this, Christina Maslach, I hope I'm saying that right. She's the foremost expert on burnout. And so she's done a lot of research. She says that it basically boils down to one thing, and that is feeling a lack of control. And there's a lot of elements that play into that. But if you think about what's going on in the workforce right now and how angry people are, my premise is that it's because people feel like they don't have a voice in the workforce or that they're just kind of cogs in a wheel. And that's why I felt like the book was so important because I can teach people how to balance out the scales again mm-hmm. with their employer. And I'm, and I don't teach you to, you know, stick it to the man. That's not my book premise. It's really, how do you, how do you find your voice in a way that doesn't put your job at risk and allows you to feel better about the place we spend so much of our day. Absolutely. And that was one thing that I really loved in the book was how you talk about not having these halfway conversations. I think we have to talk about that and how to have more open conversations. Because one thing you shared that surprised me a little bit was that the people who spoke up more, maybe who had a little, not pushback, but helped people see different perspectives. They had more longevity, you know, at a place where they were working Mm -hmm. than the people who stayed silent, right? You had that study about the Microsoft employees in the book on that. So yeah, tell us more how we can, move away from these halfway conversations and have more of these open conversations. I think this idea of having a halfway conversation is so interesting because the thousands of people or million, you know, I have over a million followers. Everybody thinks I'm the good one and it's the company or my manager or everybody else that's the idiot. Mm-hmm. And when you really peel it back, the truth is as human beings, we're all averse to conflict, will avoid it at all costs. And and that means that your manager may not be the best at expressing something, but you are also at fault. And I talk in the book about you're part of the problem. If you think about walking into a meeting um, and people, you know, somebody says, is everybody on board for this idea? And everybody raises their hands. Yes, I support it. You walk out and individuals are whispering to each other. That is the dumbest idea. That's never going to work. I'm glad that it's not me. Or you're asked by a, a new manager, you're, how are things going? And you say, pretty good. You know, I need a little help with training. And you go home and tell your partner, this is the worst company I've ever worked for. They just sink or swim. So we are so guilty of halfway conversations at work. And yet this research shows that people who speak up 10 or more times in a given year, their rates of satisfaction are 90% plus in the workforce. And if you speak up on five or more topics, it drops 30 points. And so to me, it's fascinating that the one thing we think is going to hurt us the most, which is speaking up, people say all the time, oh my gosh, if I speak up, uh, I'm going to be penalized or I shouldn't have to write the script for the company. If they don't know how to treat me right, I'm leaving. And yet, do we tell our spouse when we get married Get read my mind, and if it if you can't figure it out, I'm out of here. So same principle. 
So true. And I see that happen as a couples therapist all the time. Sure, exactly. (laughs) My mind, that kind of thing. It never works well. It never works well. And, you know, we love merging on this show, psychology and the workplace, how that comes together. And a lot of folks, especially a lot of millennials and Gen Z that I work with, have a lot of social anxiety, especially with these conversations. And so what advice do you have for somebody who's hearing that and saying, okay, that sounds good, but how do I do it? I'm shaking in my boots. I'm so afraid to actually have these conversations and give feedback. How do I do it? I tell them, start start really low risk. And low risk may look like, hey, everybody, where do you want to go to lunch today? And you actually say, hey, I have an idea. That's a low risk way to practice having a voice and getting comfortable with it. Then up the stakes a little bit more, maybe in a in a meeting when everybody's kind of brainstorming around something, throw out an idea and take it in baby steps so that when the big opportunity comes, when you do have to say something like, you're, you know, I'm getting too much workload. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're literally giving me everybody else's work who's leaving. And that doesn't feel good that you're used to what it feels like to speak up mm-hmm. and out loud. And then of course, there's a whole chapter on the way you use the right words because people get tripped up and have the right intent, but just use the wrong words around it. Right. That was something I loved in the book too. You give so many good examples for how to actually say these things. So for people listening and feeling like, I don't know how to actually have the conversation, get the book because it will show you specific scripts on that, you know? And I do think that is so important to include in these conversations. So I'm really glad that you bring that up. Uh, And yes, to start small, to ease your way in. And then that confidence builds with time. I also think we have to stop seeing conflict as so personal, you know, especially in the workplace. One thing I love that you talk about is very candidly saying like, listen, companies and the person, different interests. And in fact, sometimes competing opposite interests. Yes. You're personalizing that. You will quickly feel emotionally injured, (laughs) you know? And so I'd love if you could share more about that because I thought that was such a honestly refreshing and candid approach that's so true that we don't actually really talk about that often. Yeah, I, I find it so interesting as I, you know, I have hundreds and hundreds of comments every day on TikToks and Instagram. And it's fascinating as I start to unwind the themes of those. And people seem to think that companies are going to behave in their best interest. And you know, one of the truths of the workforce, like it or hate it, is that a company is all it has to make a profit, number one. And it is aligned to making sure that they get as much as they can from their people. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you have to have no boundaries and you just take the flogging. It means that you have to have a voice mm-hmm. in when you're full. Your man, your manager doesn't have a magic ball to know when you're full. You have to have have a voice in what works for you as well. And I honestly, honestly believe that there is room for people and employers to get along beautifully and both get what they want. And I talk a lot about this idea that the best kind of leverage is when you can provide what they want. And I teach people how to speak that language. What does the company want? But you also are able to voice what you need as well. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's room for both. Absolutely. I so agree. And one thing that when you're talking about leverage that I find a lot of my my career coaching clients miss sometimes, you talk about the importance of data 
and making the case showing, look, here is how I am benefiting the company, not I deserve a raise because I've been here, you know, X amount of time. You've got to show like the data of that. And I think that is really important to highlight. So maybe share more for folks listening to that who are thinking, well, I'd love to get a promotion. Mm -hmm. How do I make the strongest case? Yeah, I had a, a workshop on with Wall Street Journal last year that was so much fun. And I said, here's what most people, how they ask for a raise. What do you see wrong with that? And people just kind of scratch their heads because most people will say, I'm doing more work. I um, I haven't had a raise for a long time. I feel like I'm valuable. And all of that is white noise. And if you think about it, every one of those points is about me, not about the company. But when you can shift and say, okay, I have the most leverage when I can say, I have what you need. That's how you get leverage. So then you start to frame your raise request by saying, oh, uh, I have been able since I came in to increase the output of our recruiting team by 20%. And I also looked at the budget and I was able to take costs out. I've also implemented this program that's helping us get more people in the door quicker and without using expensive job boards. Um, Next up is this. Mm -hmm. Then you begin to have a very powerful argument for a raise because you're speaking the company's language and you're not just coming at it from what I want. But most conversations kind of pass each other in the night like this. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about what we need and the company's talking about what they need. And nobody is, is helping each other solve the problem from that other point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I love your approach to saying that. I mean, these are some pretty like honest, hard truths, you know, because essentially we're saying niceness, loyalty is not enough. <laughs> like, it's not. <laughs> it's not. And, you know, I think a lot of folks, you know, maybe want to hear that. Right. But the truth of the matter is these are businesses. These are companies. If the if the money is not there, there's no job to be had. Right. And That's so. Right. Yeah, getting very honest and candid about this is just so important. And I think people really appreciate that realness from you, Tessa, that you still deliver in such a kind way. <laughs> I think you are telling people the truths that they, they need to hear in that. And one thing that I thought that, oh, oh my goodness, just really hit the nail on the head too, was talking about top performers. Mm -hmm. And you write this quote in the book, if your manager hasn't indicated that you're a top performer, top performer you aren't one. <laughs> top right. It's told that they are top talent. Right. So let's talk about that because a lot of people listening in are probably wondering, well, am I top talent? Like, how do I become top talent? Um, and, and tell us more about how folks can get to become that top talent if maybe they're listening to this and saying, ooh, I'm not sure I'm aware of that. <laughs> well, I, I actually hate performance reviews in general because meets expectation, I don't even know what it means. It's really a 70% of the people have that score and it could be good, it could be bad, it could be neutral, nobody knows. But you do know when you're a top performer because your manager typically doesn't have a lot of good news to share, right? They're trying to... They're trying to get things done and get outcomes for the company. They're trying to manage budgets. So if they have good news to share, boy, they're going to share it fast. Mm -hmm. And But I don't think that's a reason to be discouraged. Every single person can create a top performer plan. So what I did in the book is I said, first of all, you got to get feedback more frequently than once a year. That's like the foundational beginning. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is you need to get familiar and feel 
um, not uncomfortable asking for feedback and receiving it on a very regular basis, because at first it'll take your breath away. The first time you ask for feedback and get some real feedback, it just like is a dagger through your heart. But then as it, as you get it more regularly, it becomes familiar and okay. And you realize that it feels more like coaching than and it feels like something punitive and it can change the trajectory. And I also think companies put together these top performer plans. So I just said, hey, I put these together. Here's what they look like. Go ask for the top performer plan. Here's the elements that are going to be in a top performer plan. There is nothing that precludes you from going to your manager and hand feeding them. This is what I need from you. Can you provide this, this experience or this exposure to me? And most managers I know would absolutely jump up and down if you're writing the script for them because they typically don't have a lot of time to mm -hmm. really develop that kind of plan for you. So if if you can know what you need and ask for it, I think it just shortcuts everything. Make yourself a top performer plan. There you go. There you go. Well, and here's perhaps a, an unpopular question or unpopular opinion, but I'm really curious your thoughts on this. The, this idea of being a top performer is it something we all can cultivate? Is it something that's more inherent? Because as I was reading that, I was thinking about, you know, even American Idol, right? Yes. All those people are convinced that they are amazing singers. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know? And I think about that even like with sales sometimes. Some people are incredibly gifted at sales. Other people, ooh, that's a little bit of steeper climb, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what are your thoughts on that? Can we all be a top performer in our field or do we sometimes have to get real with ourselves and say, you know what, I'm not sure this position that I'm in is the right fit. Maybe I need to make a pivot where I could be a top performer somewhere else. What do you yeah. think? Well, first of all, I don't think everybody is their goal is to be a top performer. Some people simply want to show up to work do an honest day work and go home. And I don't think there's a thing wrong with that. Know thyself. I think that's really important. But if you are somebody that really is driven by wanting to be really good at what you do, work the workplace is nothing but a canvas for you to practice and learn different skill sets. And what I do think everybody has, they may everybody may not be a top performer in the field they've chosen, but everybody has a superpower. Everybody has a superpower. And if you can tap into what that is, then it opens up the aperture of all kinds of other opportunities that you may not have explored once you understand what you do well mm -hmm. and what you don't do well. So experimentation, I think, is such a critical part of job because our trajectory does not look like this. You know, all of them, they're up and down and they're all over. And, mm -hmm. and it's okay. I want to normalize that with people. It's totally okay. I'm 55 and just found my calling, right? Mm -hmm. and, and yet I worked for 20 plus years in HR. I didn't enjoy it all the time. And I wouldn't say it was something that, it, it emptied me as much as it filled me. Mm -hmm. But you experiment until you, you tap into your superpowers and it does help. Yes, yes. Well, and you talk about that quote from Steve Jobs that said, only in looking back, do the dots all connect? Do you yes. feel like that's true in your own career? Test oh, you yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think about my first real career job was working with Stephen R. Covey, nice. leadership guru. And I got to work in that company. It shaped how I thought about the world and about work in ways that I can't even begin to express. And it also was my first experience. I was in my 
probably late 20s. And I got to experiment with a little bit of presenting. And keynotes are my favorite thing. I love public speaking like you. And so who would have guessed that at that young age, I would have, that would be setting the stage for what I do now as a professional later in life. Oh, and it all it all helps inform the work. And, you know, one thing that you write about, too, that I feel like for our listeners, we really need to talk about this because I know I struggle with this very much. This I, this advice you have in the book, you say, if you work hard, you'll be rewarded. That's the lie that we tend to believe. The truth is working hard isn't the same as adding value. You That's need right. both. And I remember looking back, I'm like, oh, Lauren, I had a quote I would tell myself trying to get into UCLA. I may not be the smartest, but I work the hardest. And, you know, my mantra was like, that's what's going to uh -huh. get places. Well, that worked, I guess, for getting into UCLA, maybe. But I was very burned out by the time I got to <laughs> UCLA. And, you know, I, I meet a lot of people who feel like they just have to keep grinding, grinding, grinding. Yeah. And then they get to burnout, quiet quitting, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. How can we reshift the mindset so that it is about adding value, which quite frankly, I think is deeper thinking work than just checking boxes. It uh, is. So how can we start to make that shift? Uh, well, for me, I can say how it happened for me. You know, it was really this salient moment when I was working till eight o'clock at night, every night. And my husband said, this just isn't sustainable. What are you doing when every, the whole office is not there. And I said, I know, but I have so much to do. And he said, I'll bet you a bunch of the other executives aren't there. And I'll bet they're just as successful as you. What's going on? Like, are you really working on important work? And it made me think about it. And the stories that I was telling myself about Golden Boy, the guy who got all the promotions, yes. you know, I had to reframe that. And I, I had to look at it different and say, is he really a brown noser or is he actually understanding what the company values? And, and it made me rethink everything. If, if people can look at not their job description, which is a horrible reference, but look at what within my view are the biggest problems that I see and that the company's talking about. For me at, at my last company, it was recruiting. It was getting bodies in the door because it was a really tight job market. And so I focused on that. The minute I started focusing on that and let go of some of the other things that I deemed were important, guess what? I was, I was seen as a problem solver mm -hmm. and it changed my career. And so I think people need a real reframe about that. And mm -hmm. I, I have in the book, a chapter on politics, company politics. To me, that's just about getting work over the finish line and the way company rewards it. And it's available to every person. That's the beautiful thing about politics. All you have to do is look up and see what's rewarded. And they're not really a bad thing necessarily. And once you can adjust your work style to what the company rewards and what they need, it's amazing how you can get a little bit more work-life balance back and still be seen as a real player in your company. Mm, that is such great advice. And I think something that just like how we were talking about moving out of these halfway conversations requires a little bit of trust, you know, of starting to experiment with that a little bit. I often say with my clients, lay back in the hammock a little bit and just see what happens. Because you know, I really think it's the anxiety that's propelling us of like, I just need to do, 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 do. Mm -hmm. well, maybe you need to be and show how, you know, yes. with your mind, you offer value that you don't just have to constantly be pushing 
content papers out, you know? Sometimes we, we, I hear this all the time. People will call and say, if I do any less work or I change the way I do things, I'm going to be fired. And I challenge that all the time. I'm like, is there somebody in your company that is rewarded that does that, that you think is doing less than you? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, they're all over the place. Are they being fired? Well, no. Well, they're playing politics. Well, maybe not. Maybe they're paying attention to what's valued and just kind of reshuffling their day to focus on the things the company cares about the most. Mm-hmm. And once you actually have somebody do the exercise of looking and challenging that belief that I'm going to be fired if I do anything different than what I'm doing, I think it opens up a whole new possibility of, of how you can reshape your day mm-hmm. and do things that matter to the company rather than just a checklist of things that we think are valuable or that we think show value to the company. Mm-hmm. 100%, 100%. And you know, the, the thing I think about too, I'm curious your opinion on this. Sometimes we do set those boundaries, right? And it does happen where we're let go or it does, I, I, I don't, I'm sure you're seeing this too right now. I'm seeing so many people get laid off, you know, people I connect yes. with on LinkedIn and they're saying, I got let go last week, you know, mm-hmm. um, sometimes it just happens. But, you know, in that process, if you are trying to live out your boundaries and it's not working well in the company, then maybe that's okay that a new path is opening up from there. You know, I mean, what do you think wow. as we're seeing that play out with a lot of folks right now? It's hard. It's hard for people and it does a number on them when they get laid off. Um, so I, I recognize that it's a really hard thing. I don't want to paint it overly rosy, mm-hmm. uh, but I do know that it does give you a chance to sit back for a minute and and look back on the experience and say, what would I do differently? And it allows you to make some self-corrections because one thing I do see happen a lot is people will say, I have to work really, really hard. And hard is what is going to get me the promotion. I'm going to be super loyal to the company. They're laid off. They feel betrayed. And then they go to another company and they tend to repeat the same mistake of I'm going to work really hard. And that's my showing on the altar to the company of, you know, sacrifice. And you don't necessarily have to alter up your whole heart and soul to a company to get rewarded or to to have a career that's good. I, I think a lot of times it's just about getting really clear on what's important to the company, what's most important to the company mm-hmm. and how they would seeing and solving problems within your point of view, as opposed to just working harder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that you bring that in as a theme throughout the book, be honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. about what you could do different. It is so easy for us to just point fingers and say, they're the problem, they're the issue. You know, you even talk about that with managers. And I, I do want us to talk about that as well, because a lot of people listening in may be saying, well, if my manager's the issue, that's the problem. You know, and you say that managers are the number one reason that employees say they're having a poor work experience. And 63% of employees, you say, with a bad manager, said they plan to leave their companies within the next year. Um, So what do we do with that when people are listening and saying, no, the problem's my manager. It's not me. I'm not the issue. Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know, I've had bad managers. I've had really good ones too. And I tell people that you can learn a lot from both. So don't think just because you have a bad manager, you can't grow or you can't learn. Um, I learned from a bad manager that I had, an awful lot about how I didn't want to be 
and how to be better with my own people. And I also learned how to advocate for myself as a result of having a manager who did not necessarily advocate for me. So that's kind of the other flip side of the coin is that you're going to have some bad managers. And and if you think that moving just because you don't like your manager is the best course of action, I would argue that if you think about life in red zone, green zone, um, when we're in the red zone or things are really difficult, we often think all I want to do is get back in the green zone, not realizing that, in fact, the red zone and that discomfort is actually what propels us to innovate, recreate, reimagine how to get things done. And it's a testing ground that helps us be better and actually is what puts us in the, in the green zone. It's not that we just have suddenly one day show up in the green zone. The red zone created the conditions for us to get there. So I think it's helpful to look at it that way. Plus, you're probably going to outlast a bad manager. Their numbers are the same as ours, right? They're leaving the workforce at the same amount of time as we are. So often you can outlast a manager. And if you can't bear it anymore, plant seeds in the company. Look at the ecosystem. Look at moving around so you can get a title change that helps your resume within the same company and see if you can find the right advocate within the company. This is all such good advice. I I can see people bookmarking this episode. (laughs) I love how you just give such real, tangible, easy to implement advice. And one thing we talk about on this show is, is mental health in the workplace. And, you know, here you've had this incredible career. You say, I've, I have really found my calling now. Uh, and, you know, you write about burnout in the book and how even for you, like it's oh, the yeah. with writing the book. I'm sure doing a book tour and everything right now. Tessa, what do you feel like you do on a regular basis to maintain your, your own well-being? I fly fish. I mean, that is what I do. I'm an avid avid fly fisherman. In fact, I just finished like a whole week and a half of book tour, which was solid work. And I flew to Pyramid Lake in Reno and I fly fish for three days with a bunch of women. And that's what saves me is fly fishing. And I love it. I have to do it. It's just, (laughs) it's an absolute passion of mine. And I think everybody needs to have that. I, for me, I find that I have to have something on the calendar I can look forward to. A concert, an event, a, di- a night out with friends, anything. And for me and PTO, instead of you know banking it and keeping big chunks of it, I like to take a long weekend every month because I find that it renews me and it helps me. And when my brain starts to slow down, meaning I'm looking at emails, I'm not able to, I'm not getting work done. I'm working, but I'm not getting work done. Mm-hmm. I know that it's time for a, for a reset for me. How cool. Fly fishing. That is awesome. That's a great fun fact. I know most people wouldn't guess that I'm a fly fisherman. I I don't, I guess I don't look like a fly fisherman or something, but I love it. (laughs) For everybody (laughs) listening in, Tessa's in this beautiful, like pink cashmere sweater right now. I'm just imagining her with her, her, her rod. That's awesome. That is awesome. So cool. Well, and last question we'll ask you today on the show. We ask this of all of our guests. I always love to hear what people say to this. Tessa, what do you hope your legacy will be? Oh, boy, what a question. Honestly, you know, I have six children. Um, I, I want my legacy to be 
that my children have found peace and happiness in their lives. That would be the legacy that would be more meaningful than anything else I can I could offer. But if I had to pick a close second, it would be that I can help individuals just find a slice of happiness or be able to get over the hump or make more money to take care of their family. I was a single mom for 10 years and I understand how difficult it is. And so um, being able to increase the quality of life for people seen or unseen to me is also really important. That is beautiful. Well, you are doing that. And uh, as someone who is about to become a new mama themselves, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Just a few months to go. Um, Your advice is just so timely. There's a reason you have over a million followers. People resonate with what you're saying. You give the real deal. You offer so much value. I I can't endorse this book enough, uh, truly. And so I really hope everybody get to know Tessa, get to know her wisdom um, and what a beautiful heart and soul to go with it. So Tessa, where can people connect with you and find out more about the book? How can people follow up? Well, they can find me on thejobdoctor.com. I have all kinds of offerings to people at all price points so that everybody can take advantage in some way. And they can also find me on social media platforms under Job Dr. Tessa, just about anywhere. LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, they can find me on YouTube now. I'm starting to spin that up, TikTok and Instagram. I love it. I love it. Well, and so exciting. You will be joining us for the Brain Health Book Club. We are featuring Tessa's book uh, for the month of April. So, and Tessa's going to be joining our conversation. So be sure to tune in so that you can ask Tessa your own questions and connect with her. So everyone is invited to that as well. Um, Tessa, what a true treat to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take good care. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode of the Boardroom Brain Podcast. Let's cultivate those networking skills starting today. Share this episode with someone who could benefit from listening and leave a comment and review to let me know what you think. Subscribe to get all the latest episodes and don't hesitate to tell me who you'd love to hear on the podcast. Don't forget that you're always welcome to watch the YouTube version of these episodes as well if you'd like to experience this conversation visually. I always welcome your feedback and I hope today's dialogue sparked your own insights. Here's to fostering those healthy brains both in the boardroom and beyond.